This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Inserting PCs into historical situations. The Spy in Yellow. Early 80s Horror Essentials. And the Automata of John Joseph Merlin. Gloomier, a night at Hemlock Hall by Atlas Games, is now live on Kickstarter. Gloomier is the standalone storytelling sequel to the award-winning Gloom, with even more doom and gloom. What makes Gloomier, Gloomier? A return to the beloved original setting of Gloom's Hemlock Hall. More secrets, more revelations of the ever-so-gothic Wellington Smythe family. Clear story prompts put the focus on arsenic-drenched storytelling. Gloom fans love the guests and stories mechanics. So what does Gloomier bring you? More guests and stories! Compatible with all core Gloom games! Straight from the fiendish mind of original Gloom designer Keith Baker. Plus, the Gloomsters at Atlas Games are terribly tickled to unveil the Gloom Griefcase! <laughs> A deluxe storage case to store all your Gloom games. Plus, 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 all backers also receive the Gloom Chronicles a campaign-style mini-expansion for use with any core Gloom game. So dare to enter Hemlock Hall and see what delightful disaster awaits! Back Gloomier on Kickstarter now through April 8th. For more info, go to atlas-games.com or follow at Atlas Games on Twitter. It's time once more to slip into the sleek modern confines of the Gaming Hut, where we have our Peter Frampton cover coming alive, uh, acting as our GM screen. We've got uh, miniatures thunking. We've got dice rattling. Oh, but wait a minute. Our our miniatures, I think I see a Wyatt Earp miniature and uh, also Attila the Hun. And uh, is that Alexander the Great? And they're all giving the side eye to the miniatures that represent the player characters because, Ken, this time we're talking about inserting player characters into historical situations. This is a topic that we put a pin in earlier when we started to tangent toward it, because uh, we are nothing if not parsimonious here in the podcast. We're not, not going to do two Gaming Hat segments in one episode. That would be uh, weird, especially if one is nested in the other. So nesting brings us to the whole subject of fitting player characters into a narrative, a historical narrative that is already self-sufficient without them. It already happened. Yeah. It, it had an it outcome, all of that. And so I guess the first thing you uh, need to determine is presumably in concert with your players what conceit you're using, whether this is a game where the trick is to fit everything they do into the neat historical timeline that we already have and maintain the continuity of Earth because we don't like it when Earth reboots, or is it one where you can branch off into an alternate timeline and you know you can save Martin Luther King from being assassinated, and the more you do that, the less it resembles... Uh, actual history and the more it becomes an, an alternate history. Yeah. I mean, and, and many games sort of come with that, you know, that, that presumption baked in, like if you're playing a, uh, unknown armies game, 
uh, which I have done many times. The assumption is that whatever you're doing is secret history. It's, it's the machinations of the occult underground beneath our headlines and our history books. And so your, your assumption, if you are playing a unknown armies game set in the old West, as indeed I was, was that President Garfield will die and the player characters, in fact, killed him by accident with their uh, spider-based surgery method, which turned out to be a terrible idea. Now, had they rolled a much better result on their spider surgery on President Garfield, would that have saved his life? Possibly. Would it have saved his life in a way that the history books would recognize and remember? Maybe not. But I, I think that unless you are playing the most rigid of covert time games, or the most rigid of, of games for, from some other formal perspective, you, you have a little wiggle room. You can, you can change history, certainly in, in obscure areas where nobody remembers. You know, the, we had the Johnson County War in uh, that same game. And I suspect there were many regulators who died as a result of being on the opposite side from the player characters that did not die in the historical Johnson County War. But it turns out it didn't matter because it's only in very, very big books on the Johnson County War that you find out exactly how many of these guys died. So it, it, it was not super relevant. Billy the Kid survived to go on and have his Billy the Kid career. They did not kill Billy the Kid. So that was, you know, sort of a, a soft history underneath it. Yeah. So anything where the players have agency is going to change history a little. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's really a matter of degree rather than a, a binary choice one way or the other. And often I think players want to feel that they are sticking with the timeline because that's the point. Mm. And of course, that desire is situational. <laughs> if, if Wyatt Earp starts uh, giving them lip and uh, angers the easily angered uh, player who likes to play people who lash out, maybe, uh, you know, that's then up to the other player characters to stop her from, from drawing down uh, and, uh, and killing Wyatt Earp. To point out that Doc Holliday is just hanging out across the street doing nothing very visibly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. There, you can do the old, here's all, here's the five reasons or what the six reasons why you don't want to do that with Wyatt Earp and they're in his gun and the other six, Oh, there's 12 reasons because Doc Holliday is <laughs> yeah. across the street. And, and like all games, you need player contract and like all historical uh, explorations, obviously in historical fiction, the conceit is that uh, Sharp's actions at the Battle of Waterloo uh, win the battle, that Hornblower's actions stop Napoleon from invading Russia, rather from invading Russia successfully. And the, you know, the hero, uh, while not uh, actually in history, gets to shape history into the satisfying way that history was actually shaped or the ironic way that history was actually shaped. Uh, in some cases. And so this is not a strange technology. Historical fiction has, you know, since, you know, Greek, ancient Greek times introduced their heroes into known outcomes and then said, oh, isn't it a shame they couldn't change it? Or look how great things were thanks to the hero I've just made up. So when Virgil invents Aeneas, he doesn't have him save Troy. He has him nobly refound a new, better Troy called Rome. And so you, you, you work your, your characters into the, the historical fic that you are fanning and then build your new fic, uh, as, as much as you can. And that's, that's a technique that, uh, is as old as time. And I think players, by and large, if they have bought into the contract of this is a secret history game, this is a covert time travel game, this is another kind of a game 
where we're privileging outcomes, they will throw themselves into making the outcome happen. They will, they will be the, the, um, uh, the single Amazon jet that changes the course of the battle of midway or whatever else it is that they've decided that they are. And, uh, that makes the game fun and less of an exercise in sitting back and watching history unfold in front of you, which is generally not the point of being in a historical situation. Um, unless you've got a GM who is very, very good at narrating spectacle, which I suppose some GMs are, that's not dramatically satisfying, even though it may be aesthetically or intellectually satisfying for a couple of few minutes. You know, they only put up with uh, Ptolemy Philadelphus's elephant parade for so long before they get itchy to go start fights. And that's totally legitimate. Yeah, they'll they'll give you like a few more minutes of monologue for Abraham Lincoln Mm -hmm. than they would for your player character who's an NPC. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, they have to be going off and and doing things rather than you know, following along by, well, Abraham Lincoln does things. Yep. So having now reassured uh, worried game masters that this is uh, possible and happens all the time, which is a big part of giving a GMing <laughs> advice, right, yeah. uh, we it's time to break it down into uh, steps of how you actually affect that and make that happen. And so I think what I'm hearing here is that a great trick is to look at uh, what happened in history and look for a thing, a kind of obscure thing, that without that uh, component of events, it would have gone a radically different way and then shift things around a bit so that whoever, whatever obscure person or force uh, does that in the history book. And it's even better if we don't know who did it and there's, you know, mystery, there's a question mark that you then make that the thing that the players can latch onto and to uh, make happen. Yeah, that's, um, that's something if you want, I, I guess there's sort of two ways that you can talk about this. Are the, are the player characters involved in the event in that way? Or is the event happening either as cover or as symptom for what the players are actually doing? So in the Unknown Armies game I'm talking about, when they were in Tombstone in 1881, they saw the boiling up of of problems between uh, Wyatt Earp and the Cowboys. And they, <laughs> my, my players decided, I think wisely, that getting into a gunfight with Wyatt Earp with me playing Wyatt Earp was a quick way to get to make up new player characters. <laughs> and so uh, they very, very historically tiptoed around Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and tried not to make them mad, but they uh, found another thing to investigate. And sure enough, Part of the reason the cowboys were uh, getting up to stuff is that the occult chamberlain of the uh, undead Emperor Norton was still attempting to create a new silver empire, and he was working out of Tombstone, and uh, they had to thwart him, and his economic activity was part of what was bringing the cowboys in in such numbers. So while they're thwarting him, they can count on Wyatt Earp to shoot up a bunch of Clantons and McClowries. And I, I made sure that they hated Ike Clanton just as much as Wyatt Earp did so that, you know, and again, you don't have to go very far outside of history to make Ike Clanton super annoying. So it, it's it's fairly easy to pop the players onto the allegiance track that uh, you feel is good. With the, with the uh, Johnson County War, I sort of let them pick which side they wanted to be on because one way or the other, they were going to get to see Billy the Kid. And uh, that was the point was to 
you know, sort of learn about these sort of solar heroes that Billy the Kid exemplified. And it turned out they picked the side against Billy the Kid, which was kind of the best side, because then they did get into a fight with Billy the Kid and they did salutarily lose, which was also very helpful. Right. So technique wise, uh, what you're doing there is you are uh, then arriving at a counter premise, the, the premise of the actual adventure against which the historical events are the background and are going to unfold in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you are then planning to uh, some, uh, you're either in the usual dichotomy, either uh, planning extensively if you're an extensive planner. And I think probably in your case, you had a premise and you were improvising against the known theme of the historical events. And you could, there are all sorts of moments at which that could go either way. And since you have the events in your head, you're always looking for ways to tie them in and make the uh, the overt plot of what the player characters are doing then reflect back into the the history and sort of uh, so you're looking as you go for ways to tie them up in a le- nice neat little bow which allows the players to re- retain their agency right exactly I don't I don't necessarily say that everyone can or even should do it the way that I do it because the way that I do it depends on having you know a a pretty good historical memory and a ravenous appetite for research. And so that is something that, you know, you, once you've built a good enough knowledge of the event, not only do you find those hinge points that you were talking about, you know, previously, but also you find the sort of weird little squib sidebars that go nowhere that you can use to connect onto your story. So for example, one of the great mysteries of the OK Corral fight is that, Ike Clanton, Doc Holliday, and Virgil Earp all played poker with Sheriff Bean, uh, who was a, a, a wet Clanton ally, the night before the gunfight. And it, if you're running an occult game, it is super easy uh, to make that poker game seem like it's the we're trying a, a, an occult operation to avoid what's going to happen and to get the players involved in such a way that they can influence the the occult card game in a way that they can't necessarily influence the gunfight if you're trying to keep the gunfight sacrosanct or the players are wisely not wanting to get into a gunfight with Wyatt Earp. You, you can sort of tie them as tightly as you want into these weird little side notes that don't go anywhere, and then the players will feel not just agency in their own separate actions, but like they've helped direct, you know, the eventual Earp victory in the, in the gunfight. And, and that creates... I mean, for one thing, it creates verisimilitude because, uh, you know, a year later, the players may read about the gunfight and say, oh, my God, the poker game was real. Ken didn't just make that up. And that's a great moment. And then uh, the other thing that they can do is they can feel like they're involved. And this is a a, a more magic-y way, but it's the same basic way that C.S. Forrester makes you feel like, yep. Hornblower being in the, um, uh, in the Davina River is what stops Napoleon's invasion of Russia cold. And I, I, I buy that satisfactorily, uh, even though I personally know, you know, obviously there was no Admiral Hornblower. There was no British naval presence there worth speaking of. It's, uh, it, it's just a really clever way for Forrester to, to, to have that, uh, story go on. Right. And having said that you need to decide ahead of time, uh, whether, you're going with an alternate, uh, a possible alternate timeline or sticking to the existing history. Um, I did not make that decision ahead of time when I uh, recently ran something with a historical event in it, which is uh, the Suez crisis with Dracula in it. And the 
a player is in, in the Canadian Shield secret anti-supernatural agency, their job was to keep an eye on Lester Pearson and make sure that this British intelligence agency called Edom doesn't do anything weird to try and stop him from ending the uh, British-French attack on Egypt, or, or rather settling it in a way that England didn't like. And so uh, they very much knew the historical stakes. They wanted to make sure that Lester Pearson uh, had his day, won his Nobel Prize, and uh, created peacekeeping. Uh, but they did not go in with the thought that, oh, well, whatever we do, history is going to come out okay, and we're going to reverse justify it. And so uh, there is the third way of not making it clear which way you're going to go if you're going to invest people in making history come out the right way. And, and the technique there is to seize on an event that you want to happen the way it did in our timeline and that has a whole lot of possible ways that it could have possibly failed uh, and then make Dracula one of those ways. Right. And it's not that one is superior to the other. One gives you even more tension than the other because the tension of making history come out right is just as fun as the tension of we don't know what's happening. But certainly, if you as a GM are up for an alternate history, uh, big or small, in which the Suez crisis goes south, and, and in fact, the, the British and French continue the invasion and overthrow Nasser, then that's the history you've decided you want to present. And while, you know, in the grand scope of things, uh, maybe overthrowing Nasser is not the biggest, you know, bump in the world, you can certainly say that it creates enough um, uh, wild uh, pinballs flying around international geopolitics during the Cold War that it will change up all manner of other events in the future of your game. And if you are comfortable sort of riffing on alternate histories, again, nothing wrong with that. And you can certainly make that part of the stakes for action if you, you know, can look your players in the eye and say, I don't care if James Garfield does live. I've got an idea of what would happen if he lives. You go ahead. You make those die rolls. And then they won't feel like, well, whatever else we, we, we do that goes wrong, can and history have our back? It can be, oh, no, we can really, you know, bollocks this up. And similarly, when they're engaging in their in their magic shenanigans against the gray guns, the secret um, a new confederacy that's being built in the autosphere, um, and they assassinate a legitimately alive Southern senator by magic. I didn't keep him alive just to have, you know, you know, the Wikipedia stay correct. It's like he's an obscure Southern senator. No one would hear of him outside Wikipedia. As far as I'm concerned, he can die, you know, uh, nine years early and have my players kill him. And then we don't have the alternate history in which, oh, yeah, no, there's a, a legitimately magical dream confederacy that's being built in Brazil and Mexico and the hearts and minds of America. And again, it's a secret history, so plenty of that can tick along without uh, making overt waves. But at some point, it's going to start making overt waves, and the players just have to know that you're willing, you know, to uh, to change the background if if they create a big enough change in in, in the uh, foreground. And that's again, it's part of the contract that you sort of settle out with the players. You may be saying history's plenty sticky; it'll give you so much give, but not all of it. You may be saying. History is tissue paper. Go ahead. Do anything you want. I can alternate history all day. Uh, you may be saying, no, the whole point of this game is we are not trying to uh, save Abraham Lincoln. We're playing a game around the confused circumstances of his assassination. And, and you have other stuff to do in Washington, D.C. on uh, Good Friday, 1865. And normally when you're designing alternate timelines, the whole point 
is to make them diverge as much as possible. Whereas here you can go, well, uh, history will probably tick along mostly as it did before. And some of the dates and names have changed and maybe there'll be a different president who has essentially the same policies as the one uh, that you've failed to prevent the assassination of. So you, you're not obligated to make as wildly different a timeline as you uh, can, but rather you can have, you know, historical forces have a certain parsimony behind them. And sometimes the people who are doing things are very important, uh, but there are also sort of broad forces at work that you can realistically justify why things are, uh, you know, the the 5% different uh, that keeps it in, you know, a recognizable world rather than the 100% different that you uh, see when the dirigibles show up. And right. when dirigibles show up, it's time for us to flee them through a commercial into a segment that lies on the other side. The second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrane store. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Dennis Harlow asks Ken and Robin as follows. The late Anton LaVey apparently wrote, by way of a book recommendation, The King in Yellow is the work of a writer of cheap romances who became demonically possessed after being involved in espionage work of a delicate nature, the implications of which are still cycling. Chambers and his literary emergence from the Impressionists of his day cast a die for Lovecraft, Orwell, Huxley, and many others. Yes, the reading of The King in Yellow in its entirety can drive one mad if one realizes the insidiousness of the thing. Dennis continues, I can't imagine a straight shooter like LeVay would make up such a thing just to be colorful. <laughs> well done, Dennis. Obviously, you have imbibed the spirit of this podcast. Yes. Could... Uh, Ken and Robin speculate about what delicate espionage work Chambers may have been up to and what cycling implications they might have for Yellow King role-playing game and or Fall of Delta Green protagonists. What a model question, Dennis Harlow. Kudos to you. Yes, and I'm sure Dennis is not an AI that was trained on all other questions <laughs> you've <laughs> no. previously been asked on the show. I, I note a, a beautiful human soul beneath that question, Robin, yes, not some sort of dead AI. Yes, uh, because, you know, Anton LaVey, unlike this podcast, uh, did not feel obligated to tell us when he was making things up. And part of the struggle here is to have uh, Robert uh, Chambers being a spy doing important things at a period when there was not much going on in American espionage. If you look at your uh, <laughs> overview of American espionage, it goes Culper Ring, Civil War, World War I, World War II, Cold War. 
And Chambers, of course, if we have him in the interesting time for the Yellow King in 1895, is in Paris learning to paint at a point where uh, at least uh, American interest in espionage is, is low because if they created a spy agency, you know, that might ineluctably lead to their having, you know, a foreign policy mm-hmm. <laughs> being engaged in Europe. Nobody, the America didn't want that at, at, at the time. So we may have to look uh, beyond American espionage to find somebody to, uh, to hook him into. So the most famous spies who are uh, active, Ken, in 1895, and one of them is in Paris, is uh, Pyotr Roschowski, the Akrana spy master. Uh, we covered him uh, in a full segment in episode 166. You may be asking yourself, why the head of the Tsar's secret service is in Paris and not Moscow? And the answer to that is, he was powerful enough to be able to say to the Tsar, you know what? I can get more done in Paris than I can here in freezing Moscow. So see you around. I'm going to go and, and stir up some uh, stuff and some trouble. So what do you imagine that Rachowski uh, would uh, make use of chambers in that would uh, lure him uh, into the Yellow King. Well, I think that the, the thing that would have gotten Chambers, and we know from historic, from not historical, from his anecdotes in various hunting articles, that while he was in Paris, he went to Munich at one point, probably for the hunting and the fishing. But if he was sent there on a covert mission, either by the Deuxième Bureau or by Rachowski. Uh, running him as a false flag for the Duziem Bureau. I don't feel like Rachowski and Chambers would have had a lot to talk about. Rachowski being emblematic of everything Chambers instinctively disliked. But I think that Rachowski being a very clever fellow would have figured out exactly who to uh, use within his French police contacts uh, to approach Chambers and say, hey, let's you go to Munich and while you're drawing, maybe draw this you know, uh, this fort that they've got up or this new kind of gun. And that would be super helpful to the French and chambers would considered himself something of a French patriot definitely was against the Germans. And so might've done that. And that, uh, I think is the closest thing to an espionage mission. You could maybe imagine for chambers, unless Rachowski is already wise to the manipulations of the yellow King and is saying, Hey, American art student chambers, why don't you investigate this subversive pamphlet? And uh, by the way, here's a copy of my subversive pamphlet, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, in case you need to know what a subversive pamphlet looks like. And you can, depending on how deep into the uh, anti-Semitic weeds you want to get, that, of course, the yellowness of the Yellow King comes in great part from its sign as an anti-Semitic color, anti-Semitic color badge. And so you can pull yourself into all manner of grotty turn of the century Belle Epoque anti-Semitic literature and uh, Chambers comes out poisoned by that experience as all exposure to the Yellow King poisons you and and, uh, Rachowski is basically trying to eliminate uh, other covert operators with uh, Chambers as his uh, icebreaker. You could also like I say, sent him off to Munich to spy on the Germans. And he discovers in addition to the big Bertha or whatever is being built in Munich, uh, some sort of conceptual ammunition that is being developed by the Germans, you know, using uh, the tales of Hoffman perhaps as a way to infiltrate nightmares. And he realizes that there's this whole scope of nightmare war that maybe can, you know, help him explain the, the weird figure in the pallid mask that he's been dreaming of ever since. And, and that, 
you know, activity as he uncovers the, the, the Germans attempt at dream warfare is what pulls the Yellow King through the gates of Carcosa into his fiction. Right. And if you're bringing the players into uh, the espionage world in the uh, mid 1890s, the other big figure that you want to uh, find a way to rope in there is operating mostly in London, but uh, we're making things up uh, just as Anton LaVey did. And so uh, we might want to uh, rope Sidney Riley, the ace of spies, into this uh, narrative. Can you give people the, the quick uh, 101 on Sidney Riley? A- another Russian. As, as far as anyone knows for sure, and literally no one knows for sure, he was uh, originally Zygmunt Rosenblum. He was a uh, Jew from Odessa. He left Odessa as basically as early as he possibly could, given that Jew was not the best kind of thing to be in Odessa. He whitewashed his identity, obtained the identity of Riley, possibly by making uh, friends with an elderly woman, maybe in South America, maybe not. He, he's full of exciting stories. At one point, he's carrying on with Ethel Voynich, the wife of the guy who finds the Voynich manuscript. So that's great fun. By the 1890s, he is in London working possibly for British intelligence, possibly still working for the Okrana. He may have gotten out of Odessa by basically saying to the local Okrana office, send me somewhere I can infiltrate all the counter-revolutionary or the revolutionary movements, and then immediately stopped doing that because the Okrana are terrible to work for. So he's up to the beginnings of his career of selling out everyone and generally coming back home to the British. By 1895, he's probably in London in the 18, earlier 1890s while Chambers is in Paris. He could literally be anywhere. We uh, do not have enough information to place him conclusively any spot on the globe. So wherever your campaign is taking place, there can be the young Sidney Riley uh, making his bones as a already at this time, at least double and possibly triple agent. Right. And we know from Chambers stories that the, uh, the play is also published in London and suppressed there. So uh, he can be involved uh, with the uh, player characters who are possibly going to find out about the play who suppressed it while, it was the Ace of Spies who had a big role in that. Uh, this brings us to the whole question of whether we actually want to have the author of the stories be a fictional character in the universe of the stories. Uh, we have run into we run into that all the time with uh, Lovecraft, who has often uh, made a protagonist in uh, Lovecraftian or Lovecraft adjacent stories. I personally think that is completely played out, so I would not personally jump on the idea of, of chambers as a character except annoyingly there's a really way a good way to do it <laughs> because of course the uh, whole theme of uh, the game it's about reality horror and shifts in reality uh, so you could play with the idea that it turns out that robert w chambers is a fictional character who has been created by carcosa and made real and in order to uh, publish these stories that hint at the possible existence of the play and therefore also eventually bring the play into reality. And so in this version of it, the the play itself might not actually exist in 1895, just rumors and thoughts of it, possibly inspired by these stories. But by the time we get to Fall of Delta Green and uh, the heyday of Anton LaVey, he thinks Ken 
that the book really exists, or at least he wants people reading him to think the book really exists. Yeah. The notion that Chambers himself is a scrim created by Carcosa to self-perpetuate itself, that Chambers is the, the outside of the spore or the, or the outside of the seed that falls and, uh, Carcosa blooms from there is a fun one. We know historically that, uh, LaVey was a big fan of Chambers. He had a, first edition of King in Yellow and according and, and now we are peeling on an Asa as far as unreliable Satanists but <laughs> the quote that uh, Dennis Harlow came up with at the beginning of this was put down by a guy named Michael Aquino and Michael Aquino was a former U.S. Army intelligence officer who joined the ch- uh, the Church of Satan those guys never go crazy <laughs> and then uh, broke with LaVey on the question of is there Satan LaVey was like, Satan's just a symbol, man. He's just the emblem of everything that is the man is telling you not to do. And Aquino was like, no, there is a real Satan and I worship him. (laughs) And uh, he founded uh, something called the Temple of Set as his own thing. And as a reading list for the Temple of Set, he recommended Chambers quoting, and I should put quoting in quote marks, quoting LaVey on the topic of The King in Yellow. And again, you can't rule that out. LaVey definitely did the reading, could have been a King in Yellow fan, could even have said something as nonsensical as as that. But Aquino also claimed that in 1974, LaVey, uh, while they were talking about Robert Chambers and the, and the yellow sign, suddenly went into his uh, office and comes out with a, a locked metal strong box, opens it up, and nothing is in the box except LaVey's copy of King in Yellow, the Chambers' book, The King in Yellow, and a single piece of paper covered in LaVey's handwriting that he called his pact. And Aquino hints, but does not say, that this was his pact with Satan. And given that Aquino, if he had lied, would have said, he said this was my pact with Satan since, I mean, maybe the army intelligence teaches you the double bluff, I guess. But uh, I feel like it's not impossible that LeVay did, in fact, have a copy of the King in Yellow with a handwritten pact with something. And that, of course, is the question. Is it a pact with Haster? Is it a one of those, you know, genealogy things that uh, like when Wilde writes up the imperial history of America and gives it to uh, Castain? That maybe some other wild or the same wild wrote up a, and you will found a new, the new church of America founded by Anton Zandor LaVey. And he gives it to him. And that's the action that changes reality and creates the church of Satan. Dear Anton, <laughs> I'm just a metaphor, man. It's perfectly safe to sign this document. <laughs> that's right. Your pal, Satan, yeah. Prince of Lies. Damn it. Why do I always write that? Um, yeah. So the notion. Uh, this, this of course ties perfectly in with your notion that, uh, Robert Chambers acts as a seed pod or is built as a seed pod and that this first edition somehow identified by LaVey, uh, by seeing the yellow sign on the cover perhaps is a, one of the first, uh, most Carcosan imprints of that and that the pact is indeed a document that establishes the lineage from Chambers to LaVey, or that allows LaVey to, you know, open up uh, the gates, or that it contains a steganographic version of the King in Yellow. Maybe all the play, uh, since the only, you know, quotes that we have in Chambers are relatively short, they could all fit on that one page, or maybe the one page 
expresses it in some sort of code. When you unfold that uh, page topologically or, or mystically using, you know, magic, then you get the whole play. And so the whole play is, is condensed down into this one page, or maybe Aquino lied or missaw, and it is the manuscript of the King in Yellow. The play was in there with Chambers's book. And so how does, how does Fall of Delta Green uh, figure into this? Well, if we believe that in 1974, it's still there, what happens is that Delta Green gets involved when LeVay is starting the Church of Satan in 1966, and they notice the Carcosan elements thereof. And back in 1966, uh, LeVay's got the actual play, The King in Yellow, and he's using it rather than publishing it and thus distributing its power. He's cannily using it as the basis for his uh, satanic church to, you know, get money in uh, TV time and sleep with Jane Mansfield. And so that ability uh, of the play to alter reality, LeVay has figured out how to, you know, keep a little English on it and run it for himself. And what happens is that Delta Green has to track down not only the maybe they're they're put onto it by the you know rumors of porcelain and armor and butterflies going on an occult auction and these are from the estate of robert w chambers and they're like there's no such person as robert w chambers and then they look into it and he's appearing in the you know dictionaries of national biography and he's showing up in old uh shelves on the library of congress and and they're saying, oh, this is a bad situation and art and, and art is being spontaneously manufactured. That's never good. And uh, they go off and find that the uh, the thing is being called into existence as Anton LaVey is uh, meditating on the, the, the King in Yellow play and bringing it out. Right. And that certainly dovetails with the idea that Chambers, who was a best-selling author and sold a, a ton of books later in his career, is completely unremembered. And that's because it just says in his biography that he was a best-selling author and slowly, you know, the forces of Carcosa have to write all of those terrible inane romance novels, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that, that make it uh, create documentary realism for this. There's a whole bunch of drudges in the bottom of the uh, Tower of Carcosa writing all this this, uh, this nonsense. I, I prefer to think that because they're growing through the ontosphere, they're going, as they come up to reality, they're coming up through the most surface and palette of fantasies before they break out into our world. And so th- that's why the, the most of Chambers's work is, is there on this very superficial level is because that's the last level that they have to penetrate before they get into reality. And every one of those little vines of uh, Hali, uh, one of those little tatters that pokes through creates one of those terrible novels because it came out through the dream of someone saying, gosh, I'd like to meet a millionaire and uh, use my telepathic powers to turn him to good. And boom, there you go. The, the novel athlete has now been brought into existence. But that uh, that poor woman, uh, she is now a conduit for the King in Yellow because she had an anodyne fantasy. Well, that suggests, Ken, that this set, very segment will continue to change over time and grow and become more interesting. Therefore, we don't have to keep working on it. We can just leave it right where it stands. And head on through this commercial. Let Camilla and Casilda talk about stuff for a change. Exactly. And and see what lies on the other side.
The best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast from becoming a historical situation alongside such estimable Patreon backers as... Jane McDowell. Tone Malazzo. Noel Warford. Pedro Garcia and Yadge from Edinburgh. The whir of the projector, the curl of cigarette smoke up through the beam, the whatever that is on the floors of the cinema, welcome us to our comfortable seats, center row, center aisle, in the cinema hut, where the um, uh, the cigarettes are still there, the popcorn has still got real butter on it. Because we're in the 80s, Robin, we're in the pinnacle of human and horror development, and we are uh, beginning to see horror being taken a little more ironically than it has been. Some of the young guns, the young bucks that we've been talk- we talked about last time, they've grown up on the horror, and in-, in addition to loving it and responding to it, they are also commenting on it a little bit archly. Yeah, and- so we think of the 90s as being the decade of irony, but if you look at horror... It is the 80s where irony comes in, and I think a couple of things are happening there. One, the horror auteurs, and there are only horror auteurs now because Michael Cimino blew the regular art house <laughs> auteurs getting funded by Hollywood thing with Heaven's Gate. And so now if you want to create a body of work that reflects a particular perspective that you have as a director, the still disrespected but still uh, starting to make a bunch of money genre of horror is your place to do it. So uh, those people have already, some of them had an ironic perspective, and they're certainly picking up the gauntlet that Romero threw down in Day of the Dead. Uh, and that is the the first big, really satirical, ironic horror movie that we've spoken of. Not the first horror comedy, to be sure. So that's already in the creative bloodstream. And also uh, the early 80s, of course, is the heyday of Ronald Reagan and the uh, attempt to uh, bring back, you know, the whole morning in America, apple pie. Uh, everything's going to be good again. Forget that whole malaise of the 70s bit. Let's go back to having our white picket fences. And immediately... All of the uh, smart Alex subversive directors who are off doing uh, things in corners of the culture that are not being examined by the full wider culture. What do they do? They go, well, let's see what's weird and uh, and dark about them. But they don't just satirize the uh, Reagan side of the equation. Uh, they also go after Southern California culture, as uh, Joe Dante does in The Howling from 1981, where he makes a great a satirical werewolf film that is a, a parody of Est and the self-improvement uh, movement, because uh, what could be more cultish and more self-improving than uh, turning into a lycanthrope? Yeah, I think that uh, The Howling is in some way Joe Dante's response to Altered States, which is basically the same story told without the ironic side-eye. Ken Russell film, as wild and beautiful as all Ken Russell films are. And then Joe Dante said, yes, but what if actually about werewolves and funny. And so that's 
where he, I think he takes a lot of altered states imagery and then just says, but also big goofy werewolf ears. And, uh, the, the makeup in the howling is, uh, where we're in this beginning of, of, or this climax really of, of great practical effects. So even though the end result werewolves are not, uh, terrifying per se, the process of building them up is, is very involving. You, you buy it. And the storyline is, is, is a little bit involute for a horror movie, which is part of the, the fun of the howling. And also Joe Dante is, is kind of a, a you know, the beginning of his great ability to just project his id onto the screen with as few things in the way as possible. Um, it, it's great fun. Uh, as you say, very much of its time, but also, you know, one of the, uh, one of the unsung werewolf, uh, movies. I think that a lot of people maybe skip over the howling because all they remember is the big puffy ears. The other great werewolf movie and perhaps even the greater werewolf movie of 1981 is, uh, American Werewolf in London directed by John Landis and uh, American Werewolf in London for a movie about an American werewolf in London is a ghost movie, really not so much a werewolf movie, although there's werewolvery around the edges and under the spine of it. Right. Right. And definitely the thing that people remember about this is its attitude, which I think typifies the films of this period in that it is both funny and scary. Uh, it has a classic transformation sequence. So it was an, an, a milestone in practical effects it's got, you know, that uh, Griffin Dunn as the uh, wise cracking zombie like deteriorating ghost. It's got it's got a really effective cheaty uh, dream jump scare in it and the uh, the attitude of the film and its its blend of sort of cheekiness and actual really upsetting horror is what people take away from it. Uh, what I think people forget about after they've seen it and are remembering all the great sequences is that it has no third act. Yeah, it it just sort of, you know, sets up the joke and then hopefully you like it well enough. But the setup is amazing and um, uh, it is, I would say, still an essential film and still a great werewolf film in the sense that this is a film about what werewolvery might be psychologically, even if as a story, as you say, it sort of stops and goes no further. Moving on to our, uh, our, our horror auteurs, uh, John Carpenter comes back in 1982 with a film that was widely panned by literally everyone, including horror scholar Kim Newman in possibly the most embarrassing film review he's ever written. Uh, the thing, a remake of the Howard Hawks uh, original, but more of a remake of the John W. Campbell story that inspired it. And also one of the great isolation and paranoia horrors ever put on paper. I think that the ironies of the thing are all turned inward. It becomes a black uh, philosophical meditation on the, on human nature and the human condition more than it is an ironic jab at Howard Hawks. Certainly it uh, takes that and says, no, no, but seriously, if this was going on, what would that say about us? And nothing good is the answer. So it's in a way, it's sort of a response to uh, even the earlier uh, zombie films, uh, night of the living dead, which say, all that supernatural horror does is expose how terrible humans are. And in that, in this case, the thing does that while also having amazing practical effects, a common theme of the eighties. Right. And also thematically draws on another great fifties uh, title that we've talked about uh, previously invasion of the body snatchers, right? It's yes. The, uh, who uh, this, this monster uh, can infiltrate. It can, uh, uh, you may be, you may have your friend tied to the chair or you may have uh, this protoplasmic, ever-changing, not at all James Arness dressed as a giant Frankenstein carrot 
again, the effects break a new barrier in, uh, in disgustingness. And uh, I think that's part the shock of how far they go is, I think, what caused even a lot of people who should have known better, as you suggested, <laughs> to, to pan it. A, a lot of horror films in general, uh, because they are below the cultural radar, uh, become appreciated later. But the next one on the list is one that was a big hit at the time. Uh, this is Poltergeist by Tobe Hooper. Actually, uh, just as Howard Hawks actually directed most of the thing from another world, uh, this was actually taken over by uh, the producer, Steven Spielberg, who shot a lot of it. And it is less ironic than some of the other ones we're looking at, but it still has the sort of technical irony of the uh, all-American family, the uh, Reaganite picket fence family, uh, then being menaced from uh, the uh, what is now cliched native burial site uh, that uh, that the bad real estate developers once again it's the real estate developers that are causing the problems built their uh, subdivision on. There are some uh, genuinely upsetting uh, shock effects in this, but it has sort of Spielberg's sense of suburbia and mainstream middle class American culture interacting uh, with the dark things from below that I guess are. Uh, represented in this uh, pairing by uh, by Tobe Hooper. Yeah, uh, Poltergeist is uh, very much an American gothic, literally, in that it's about the great sin coming back from, you know, the past to haunt the present, as well as being, because it's an American gothic, it's also very much concerned with American family life and real estate values. And so, therefore, Poltergeist is, in addition to its successes as a film, and I think if you haven't watched it in a while, Go ahead and watch it and uh, get creeped out all over again. But it's also does such a great job of establishing exactly that sort of counterpoint to um, uh, the 80s ideal uh, that became very, very tiresome the 20th or 30th or 50th time it was done. But the poltergeist is one of the things that did it so well that everyone thought, well, how hard is that? Very much a response, I think, also to Halloween, uh, which takes this uh, monster and puts him in uh, an all-American suburb of Haddonfield, Ohio. And so uh, Poltergeist is responding not just to to the, the outer culture, but also very much to fellow horror films. A horror film that I think was not responding to anything going on then or possibly ever is Tony Scott's The Hunger, which is a... It's not ironic at all. It's a romantic rock opera of a movie, and it is sheerly gorgeous, as I think any movie with Catherine Deneuve, by definition, is sheerly gorgeous. But it is an amazing piece of work, just on the surface level of a filmed thing to look at. And then the story, of course, is of uh, vampires who are slowly dying out and is a not particularly thickly uh, veiled portrait of the AIDS crisis. And this is another example of horror talking about things that the rest of society doesn't want to really talk about yet. But the the hunger is very much about this beautiful world being destroyed. Um, uh, and it is a uh, it, it's it's an amazing movie, just visually. And it's a beautiful uh, vampire movie as well. Well, I, I'm going to rope it into its time okay. in a couple of ways. One, this is the uh, ultimate uh, MTV uh, vampire movie mm-hmm. uh, that uh, well, uh, Tony... Well, penultimate. Um, uh, I think uh, Lost Boys is the ultimate MTV vampire movie, but sure. But <laughs> certainly in terms of that aesthetic, that mm-hmm. Adrian Lyne with Flashdance is the first one to take the 80s music video and turn it into a film aesthetic. And uh, Tony Scott, uh, with the same sort of luxurious outer surface is doing that. And the uh, the sort of uh, 80s 
uh, decadence. The New York cocaine culture is implicit in there as well. And it is ironic in the sense that it is drawing its uh, sort of imagery and its sense of romanticism from Douglas Sirk, whose beautiful, glossy 50s melodramas are all themselves uh, drenched uh, in irony. So it's a not a comedic irony, but I would say that is an irony uh, nonetheless. And more overtly uh, satirical irony appears in David Cronenberg's uh, Videodrome, also from 1983. This is uh, a grotty and, and weird and especially pertinent to Torontonians. The uh, uh, fictionalized <laughs> character is clearly based on a real TV mogul that everybody knows uh, here. And it is about the uh, slow uh, reality horror disintegration of uh, a TV executive as he uh, stumbles onto a covert underground sexually explicit uh, programming that uh, of course as as that exposure uh, does as as when you read the uh, the yellow king it uh, causes him to uh, to grow a gun pocket in the middle of his abdomen and it's one of those films that uh, <laughs> sure it does <laughs> yeah that's be careful what you watch kids yep. and uh, it's definitely for me my favorite of Cronenberg's films and one where the soul of Toronto uh, as it is in a number of his films is is very uh, clearly uh, emanating in its horrible, dripping way from this film. Well, from uh, the greatest city in Canada, we go to the second greatest city in America for Ghostbusters, the pinnacle of horror comedy and itself uh, an ironic gesture of love by Danny Aykroyd at the paranormal investigation world that he unironically loves and uh, celebrates in, in this film uh, by Ivan Reitman in 1984. Uh, Ghostbusters... What can you say? Everyone listening to this podcast has seen Ghostbusters. I think this may be the f the horror essential that more people on our listenership have seen than even Dracula, but it is uh, a, a pinnacle comedy. It, it stays funny. It has genuinely scary bits, but not a, not a ton of them. It's some great jump scares, and it's sort of philosophical, working class ghost hunting tied in with the sort of ironic uh, observational uh, humor of, of Bill Murray uh, as Peter Venkman. You can't say enough good things about Ghostbusters. It's a love letter to New York City. It's a love letter to Dan Aykroyd's crazy brain. And it is just a marvel of plotting and dialogue and scripting. There may, there may be no better scripted genre film, I think, than Ghostbusters, in my opinion. It is just a marvelous piece of work. And given the ridiculous nonsense that it began with, if you've ever seen any of, of Aykroyd's first draft of it's the script. 300 page first draft. Yeah, yes. It's just, uh, it's amazing that, uh, Reitman and, uh, I forget the, the name of the other, uh, screenwriter, the other credited screenwriter were able to, um, to pull it, uh, into that beautiful, beautiful shape. It's just a, a staggeringly good movie. Yes. Uh, it's irony, of course, comes from, from Canada, from, from Dan Aykroyd <laughs> right, yep, and Ivan, yep. Ivan Reitman. Uh, we had to talk about horror comedy. Uh, there were other ones earlier this, that we could have mentioned, but I thought we would wait until uh, we got to Ghostbusters, which is the, uh, the, the granddaddy of them all. And the reason it works so well is that there's no uh, fat on it, which is, you suggest is amazing beginning, uh, given the first draft, but that it is a film that relies on momentum. There's no, scenes that are just there in order to have the comic actors riff with each other it builds like a suspense film and it, it uh even though one of the uh horrors is mr stay puffed it also you know takes the horror seriously enough uh that it the the thriller momentum 
uh, work. So it, it's a great example of how uh, comedy works within the framework provided for it by other uh, genre rules, in that case, the uh, the supernatural thriller. And there's, you know, it's it's got a, a gumshoe element to it, too. There's a mystery to uh, unravel and some maps to look at and stuff. So it looks like we're going to get not even all the way through 1984. Uh, so <laughs> let's uh, end uh, with a film that uh, disputes our thesis uh, made by the least ironic filmmaker then or uh, currently working James Cameron of Terminator from 1984. You may be thinking, wait a minute, that's a science fiction a movie. It's about a robot. Well, if Jaws is a horror movie, which is about confronting a, a, a relentless shark, well, that's basically the T1 is uh, Bruce the shark and Michael Myers uh, put together uh, for a, a relentlessly tense horror chase film. And if you're still disputing that this is a horror film, and I'm not blowing anything because, of course, if you haven't seen this film, we can't help you. Yeah. It turns out, Cam, that there's a skeleton inside him. There's been a skeleton all along. That's the right. whole movie has been it's a skeleton. Always a skeleton. Yeah, Terminator is absolutely a, a horror film. I think people think of the sort of high-gloss, high-sheen uh, Terminator 2, which is a entirely successful sequel on its own right. Uh, but much like Aliens took a lot of the horror out of Alien to make a, a an effective sequel, uh, T2 takes much of the horror out of Terminator to make an effective sequel. Terminator itself was a low-budget SF chase horror thriller. It, it, when you watch it with none of those preconceptions, it's in, in between inventing a lot of the neon aesthetic of the mid-'80s, uh, Terminator is also very much a here is a monster, here is a final girl, let's make them fight film and everything that that goes into it goes into it not just you know for the for the romance or for the sf but also for this how do we make it scary how how do we demonstrate always demonstrate that the terminator is even worse than we thought and that i think is the secret to it is that you know it begins it's naked arnold schwarzenegger he beats up some bikers that's kind of scary but then he just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and more powerful and more unstoppable until his sheer unstoppability becomes the thing you have to fight. And it, and that, of course, makes for a terrific horror film, because if it's by definition unstoppable, how do you stop it? And that is uh, the question that Sarah Connor has to answer. It's just a, a technically excellent film. Uh, Linda Hamilton does an amazing job playing the final girl. Michael Biehn is absolutely great as the love interest the, the the way that cameron sort of flips the conventional story arc on its head it's it's not actually about michael Bean uh protecting sarah connor even though that's the conceit the film is entirely about sarah uh, finding her inner uh badass and uh coming to terms with it in the same way that halloween is about uh jamie lee curtis of uh, finding her inner badass well the terminator uh may be unstoppable but uh, the cinema hut is going to have to come to a stop so next uh, week, we've got more 80s, uh, more irony, and uh, just like the early 30s and the early 60s, there's a wealth of uh, essentials to get through, and we'll uh, do that next week. But this podcast ain't over. There's something else waiting on the other side of this commercial message.
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. It's time once more to clamber up the creakety cobweb stairs where... Oh, wait a minute. Our, our portrait of the salamander is gone, and there's uh, some weird automaton. Uh, we'd better go in and uh, check with the consulting occultist to see what's up. And he's got a little slip of paper, because enigmatic patron backer BT asks, What occult secrets are embodied by the 18th century automata of John Joseph Merlin? Uh, John Joseph Merlin was born in uh, 1735 in Liège, and... Uh, weirdly enough, uh, for someone we're covering on Consulting Occultist, that was his real name. Yeah, he was Jean-Joseph, not John-Joseph, because he was born in a French-speaking part of what would eventually become Belgium, and then changed it to John-Joseph when he moved to London, which he did in the entourage of the Spanish ambassador. He was their technical advisor, because then as now, a lot of spy work and uh, ambassadorial work uh, involved uh, technical espionage, and one suspects that having made his bones as a clockmaker and organ maker, the Spanish court, which ran the Spanish Netherlands, hence the name, at the time, picked him and brought him around. So, on our thesis, everyone is a spy. We suspect maybe John Joseph Merlin began as a spy, but we don't have time for his spying career, not only because it's unattested in the historical record, but because he immediately gets busy building stuff. He makes keyboard instruments, pianofortes, and harpsichords. He invents the inline roller skates right around at this period of time. And in 1766, he hooks up with a very famous jeweler named James Cox and works at Cox's Museum, which opens up in 1769. He's the manager and curator and eventually lead automaton builder for Cox's Museum. He builds the famous Silver Swan automaton, which you can still see in Durham, and it, it goes through all of its actions. It's a, it's a beautifully alive-looking swan, and it, uh, it impressed Mark Twain, which I guess was hard even in 1869 and it's there today. You can, you can still watch it. You can watch it on YouTube and it uh, impressed everyone so much that the czar of Russia ordered an animated peacock to be sent to him. So he built that and went off. Uh, he is at the same time trying to replicate the tone of Cremona violins, 
uh, by inventing new forms of violin and working with uh, harmonics and acoustics. Uh, his new violins seem now to be either minor adjustments to regular violins, or they were ridiculous looking sort of deconstructed violins. So he's, he's thinking about the, the mechanical nature of the sound. Yes. He, he gave up on his flying V uh, violin, right? He becomes ever more famous and ever more successful. Uh, he's buddies with Gainsborough and builds him a piano. And in exchange, Gainsborough paints him in 1781. And Gainsborough paints Merlin uh, keyboards into the background of a lot of other people's paintings, uh, which is part of the advertisement necessary for him to open Merlin's Mechanical Museum in 1783 in Hanover Square, which is a very good neighborhood. The Cox's Museum was in St. James's, another excellent neighborhood. And the goal was for rich people to come and drop a, a couple of dimes. It was uh, two shillings and sixpence for the morning show, three shillings in the evening, but that comes with coffee. Uh, and you wander around for two hours in the museum looking at all the cool stuff. And all the cool stuff includes not just swans and birds and maidens that dance and move around, but perpetual clocks, a clock that works by air pressure and never needs to be wound. There are orreries and horologues that tell you, you know, when the planets are coming up and things like that. There is a stone eater called the Grand Turk, which I assume is a mechanical Turk that you put a stone in and then it hides it somewhere. There's a mechanical garden where a whole garden is replicated by machinery. Uh, there's a steel tarantula, which just sounds amazing. And quite <laughs> frankly, John Joseph Merlin's steel tarantula by itself justifies this whole yes, segment. And why there isn't an 80s hairband called steel tarantula, someone would someone drop the ball. Like there's obviously been a, a, a time slip up somehow. Uh, and then there's other scientific trickery in uh, the museum. It, it's sort of like, you know, a, you know, a science museum now. And so you, you go and, uh, you learn about acoustics with whisper busts. And so you whisper into the mouth of a carefully, uh, uh positioned and, and hollowed out bust. And the person across the room can hear that whisper, uh, in the other bust. And it's very exciting. He, talks about maybe setting up a necromantic cave in 1785. He would take the persona of Ambrosius Merlin and demonstrate walking dead people. And I think everyone said, uh, no, we're good. We're good with the birds and the steel tarantula. <laughs> so that went nowhere. Uh, he dies in 1803. His collection is left to a guy named Thomas Weeks, which is auctioned off in 1834. One of the automatons, a dancer with a bird, is bought by Charles Babbage, who as a child went to Merlin's Mechanical Museum and was amazed that you could make clockwork do all that stuff. And uh, Charles Babbage, of course, then went to make clockwork, make computers, and uh, be remembered in history after we figured out how to make computers uh, without clockwork. And so that is John Joseph Merlin's impact on history is to make a cool silver swan, to send something to Russia that got lost or destroyed, and also to inspire Charles Babbage. He also invented various sorts of wheelchairs, artificial limbs. Uh, he drove around in a horseless carriage, which probably worked by um, uh, flywheels. Uh, we don't necessarily know how it was done. He would just ride around. And the story that you will find in every story, every website on John Joseph Merlin, which we have to tell apparently contractually, is that he was at a fancy party held by a duchess and he was demonstrating both his inline skates and his new violin. And as could be predicted, wackily loses control of his inline skates and smashes into a mirror that cost 500 pounds. And he's still invited back. 
to parties, which he would attend sometimes. I guess he had the 500 pounds. Or the Duchess was like, oh, that Merlin, ha, 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 and figured it was worth 500 pounds to get that story. Yeah, she, had, she had a story that was worth 500 pounds. Right. It, 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 well, it, it gets on every website even now, so she may have been right. Yeah. He would uh, attend, a fan, he would go, go to parties in fancy dress. He would dress in drag. That was uh, a big hoot. Everyone enjoyed that, seeing a Belgian in drag. And so he was a, a party animal and a celebrity as well as an inventor and as well as a builder of automata. But I guess his dream of a necromantic cave was never realized hashtag or was it right? Uh, so uh, yeah, he, he's left you nothing to work with here. Ken in right. devising a secret occult history <laughs> in uh, animating the dead and uh, uh, becoming the forefather of Chuck E. Cheese. So, um, <laughs> so uh, where do we go with this in order to bring it into either a, a period occult investigation or one set today. Well, I think a period occult investigation definitely has to involve some sort of killer automaton, you know, uh, and it can either be a proper stalking robotic killer. Or Maybe there's a, it'll turn out to have been a skeleton all along. It may have been a skeleton all along, uh, or um, uh, it could be a bunch of tiny killers. Like in uh, there, there was a horror franchise that the name of which escapes Puppet Master or whatever, and there was they made a bunch of uh, tiny little automata that ran around and did adventures. And in one of them, they worked for the Nazis or fought the Nazis. I forget. There's Nazis in one of those uh, sequences, but tiny automata make a great tool for any spy, perhaps. Throughout his career in England, he's also continuing to spy for the Spanish and steal secrets with his tiny automata that are moving around and and spying on uh, ships and uh, cannons and whatnot. Or maybe his tiny automata are out stealing stuff and getting him the goods so he can keep paying the rent on, on Hanover Square. Uh, I think that John Joseph Merlin makes a great mastermind of a secret London with his tiny robots moving around. Um, I think that he can also be, you know, a, a, a friendly whack advisor and helper uh, if a different kind of automaton is is uh, fighting people and going after them. And then, of course, in modern days, you, yeah, there's there's all the standard stuff that that shows up: the birds, the the flowers, the dancers. But what if the steel tarantula comes back up uh, for auction and uh, it's got a secret to it? And maybe the secret is that. We don't know how it's powered. It's working on some sort of weird flywheel geometry. That, it's, it's powered by blood. Sorry. Oh, yeah, right. Or, blood. or it's powered by, by blood. That could be the, uh, the other thing. And so it can either be its own monster or it can be uh, the lead to a group of, uh, of occultists who are um, uh, attempting to replicate uh, Merlin's necromantic cave and uh, use his knowledges for contemporary evil because, you know, tiny dolls that can move around and, and cause troubles. We, we, we know all about those. Um, they're, they're bad. They're a bad scene, right? Yeah. So since the horror applications and occult implications have uh, written themselves, <laughs> I, I think we can uh, uh, pat ourselves in the back. Uh, we can look around, make sure there are no steel tarantulas um, hanging around in our respective apartments and uh, go and, and, uh, and rest for a week. On our, on our fainting coaches, uh, because we're going to have a whole nother podcast uh, ready for you in a mere seven days. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Asphagelm. 
Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Ron Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast gears and pulleys in motion by joining beloved backers Darren Hennessy, Matt Farr, Miko Irexenen, Oli Tovenen, and Thomas Vallejos. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpolly.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Comment on your Zoom workplace as our reluctant Phoenix says, oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.